I think we're about to get started here. So I'm going to start by going slightly off script. I think when you see people giving presentations, you're thinking that the, their work is really cool, and you're like, that must be so awesome to be smart and get things done. But that's not this story. This story is building a tool to solve a problem and deploying that tool and having it fail and take down your build environment. And throwing that code away and starting over. Building another tool with everything you learned from your first attempt and then having to throw that away. Second attempt, got all the technical things right from the first, uh, the first attempt, but it didn't take the human factors into account, it didn't take the workflow into account. So today we present a method and a tool that's the culmination of years of trial and error. This is a story about persistence. So I'm only gonna ask uh, you guys to raise your hands one time, but I'm wondering from the, uh, from the audience, how many people know what a pen test is? Yay, okay. So uh, uh, typically a pen test is when you enter an agreement with somebody, maybe it's a responsible disclosure, a public or private bug bounty, maybe you enter into a contract with a security company and you give some guidelines and they send their best hackers to try to break into your stuff. And the general rule, the general way they're set up is that once they find something important, they kind of stop and they report to you what they have found. So if you've ever participated on the offensive side of a pen test, you know that once you found something, it might have taken you hours or days to find something, and the last thing that you want to do is to stop. What you really want to do is take whatever you found and try to pivot. Try to see how much further you can go. So we had one of these security researchers, and they found a bug in one of our servers, we run over 100,000 servers, and on one, they found a bug called RCE, remote code execution. Now in Amazon, RCE can be especially dangerous because that allows the attacker to possibly pull your Amazon credentials and try to do other things with them. The first thing you do once you get these credentials is you try to explore to see what permissions you have. There's a number of open source tools that will help you enumerate the permissions that you've received. Typically, they're pretty noisy. And so this is what we saw as well. So we got alerts, we were able to respond. More importantly, the calls that this person was trying, that the security attacker was, was, was using, they were getting denied. They were getting denied because we were able to right-size the policy on this server. Now, if you have a small deployment, maybe that doesn't sound like such a big deal. Maybe getting the permissions just right for your application it seems like it's pretty simple. If you have many, many Amazon accounts and thousands and thousands of servers and thousands of applications with different IAM roles, this can be pretty difficult. So this is the story that we're gonna talk about today and our, our tool to solve this. This picture is not a stock photo of a hacker. This is actually me my super senior year at Arizona State University, I uh, did an article about security, and then right before they went to publish it, I chickened out, and I wanted them to publish it anonymously, so they let me put the mask on. In the article, they, uh, they still identified me as a super senior in the computer systems engineering org, who was white, scrawny, so my professors all knew who it was me. <laughs> so I've been at Netflix for five years, 
I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm the author and maintainer of a package called Security Monkey. Security Monkey helps you scan all of your clouds, all of your accounts, looking at policies, looking at things that are shared or maybe misconfigured. Part of Security Monkey is a library called CloudOx that we've developed that helps kind of collect the data from Amazon, kind of a wrapper on Bodo. It creates a schema for each of the technologies that we watch. It's just some other niceties as well. Policy Universe is another library that came out of Security Monkey, and this helps you parse IAM and resource policies, even those that have complex condition blocks to help you understand whether they're internet accessible. And Aardvark and RepoKit are the two tools that we are talking about today. Travis, it says here that he's been at, at Netflix for a year. That's slightly a lie, which only makes it a little bit more impressive. He's previously at IBM, Symantec, HP, Inatech, Death Star, all companies that have very different cultures than Netflix. And yet, when he came over to Netflix, he adopted our culture, our freedom and responsibility culture, without hesitation. He's been at Netflix for about nine months, and yet, some of the work that we're talking about today, our chief product officer was talking about on stage last night. I think that's pretty awesome. Travis is the author and maintainer of Bandit, which is a Python static analysis tool. Um, he's uh, done a, a lot of work on Aardvark and RepoKid, the majority of the work on RepoKid. Um, and he's a leader in OWASP Bay Area, which is a networking and security um, organization. So the main gist of our talk today is least privilege. And maybe the right term isn't least privilege, maybe it's right-sizing permissions. I think that's probably where we want to get to. So at a lot of companies, it's really hard to get the right permissions if you want to deploy something. If you're at a, a bank or a healthcare company or a defense contractor and you want to spin some servers up and play, it's not super easy. That makes the developers unhappy. Maybe the security team's pretty happy with that, but they do it because they really want to stop the attackers. Other organizations that want to move faster that don't want to be encumbered by security, they'll more easily give out too many permissions. This makes, makes it so that security people might not sleep as well at night, but the developers are super happy because typically they don't have a gate, they don't have something slowing them down as they try to build stuff. And the attackers are also happy. So getting it right isn't easy. I think my director, instead of the Venn diagram, his preferred uh, analogy is uh, the three bears. There's cold soup and warm soup, and soup that's just right. But getting it just right isn't hard, but that's where we want to be. We want everyone to be happy, except for the attackers. So there's different ways to give out permissions for your application. And it's hard, it's non-trivial. I know a lot about IAM permissions, but even with code that I've written, when I've tried to make the policy for it, I can get pretty close, but I can't get it perfect. Before reInvent, there were 3,199 unique permissions in the policy generator and about 108 services. There's probably going to be a lot more after reInvent this year. Imagine you're an enterprise developer and you're developing on a platform and you don't know what that platform's doing. There's sidecars. You just have your code. You're so far abstracted from the cloud that you're running on that how are you supposed to know which S3 permissions you need? 
So we need to do a little bit better. This slide is my wall of text slide, as Travis says. Um, the point here is to, to take the concepts that we're trying to get at, the idea that if you can find a data source telling you what something is doing, and you can compare that to the permissions that you've given that something, then you can take away the unused permissions. So if we were to apply the same concept in networking, maybe you could look at the VPC flow logs and take away any security group rules that didn't need to be there. Inside Netflix, we have an internal project attempting to do that. There's a section for resource policies. There's a lot of things in Amazon that you can share. You can share with IAMRolls, you can share with other accounts, you can make them internet accessible. For each of these, if you could find a data source, then you could take this right sizing and you could do it there. S3 has server access logs and S3 CloudTrail. If anyone's ambitious, maybe that's the next place to go. For encryption, maybe the same thing could apply as well. Maybe you could look at your load balancer logs and you could determine which of your clients are using old protocols? Which ones are using weaker ciphers? Maybe you can get rid of the, the stuff. I recommend staying on the latest reference policy. There's a couple other resources here that can be shared, but they don't use a resource policy. Um, but the same thing applies. If you could find a, a data source, you can right-size them. Today, the scope of our tool is focusing on IAM policies. Initially, IAM roles but everything I am, this will work for. So in giving out permissions to, other, uh, to your developers, there's different ways to go about this. When I talk to other engineers, other security teams at Bay Area companies, a lot of them will actually have something where the developers have to set up a meeting with a security team and discuss what their application needs to do. At Netflix, I don't know that that would work. At Netflix, we're really hardcore about the, our culture, um, summarized with freedom and responsibility. And I think a lot of the developers prefer the freedom side of that. If they have a harebrained idea, they don't want to have to run it by security to get the permissions to be able to deploy. They want to just play. And I think we've decided that we need to be able to enable that. And so our solution for providing credentials to developers at Netflix and do it underneath the hood. Do it in a way where they don't necessarily even have to know how we're doing it, but make it so their stuff typically works. So talking about permissions, when an app is deployed for the first time, you have to create the permissions. We've, we're moving from a naive approach to how you create permissions for an arbitrary application to something a little bit more sophisticated. It used to be that we had a base set of permissions and everyone would kind of start with that and maybe that would be enough, but typically that was a bit of over-provision. Now we're moving towards something where we look at the account that you're deploying to. We look at the, the dependencies used to build your AMI. And we're looking at the permissions that we have previously taken away from other applications. If we've taken it away from almost every application, then it's very unlikely that your application will need it. So I think we're getting better at starting people off. The meat of this talk is the next couple of sections, the access profiling. Once your application has been running for a while, we have a, a quarterly deprecation cycle. So every 90 days, you're supposed to rebake and redeploy your application. So if your application has been running for this 90 days, then we assume that anything, any permission you haven't used, we can take away. And so we do. 
and that's actually really awesome. And I think we want to change the culture so that this is thought of the same way as chaos engineering. So your permissions are not static, they're elastic. We'll give them to you, we'll take them away. Any successful application is going to require new features, and new features oftentimes require new permissions. So we have to have the system also be able to accommodate the fact that you can get new permissions, and we don't take them away until we've had enough time to see if you're actually using those two new permissions or not. And then finally, when your application is done, when you're not making any more calls, when your role isn't attached to any more EC2 instances, when there's no more running Lambdas, we want to clean it up. We have a few accounts that have thousands and thousands of IAM roles. I really, I really like to clean those up. So this is uh, my last slide before I turn it over to somebody who doesn't sound like Kermit the Frog. This is my favorite, probably most important slide. So Access Advisor is a feature that Amazon has provided in the IAM console. If you log in, if you go to one of your IAM roles, one of your IAM users, this will show you which services that role is using. And it's simple. It's simple and it's elegant. And so we have this table on the side. And this is very similar to what you would see. Every row in this table is from a service that this role has permissions for. And it tells you if it's using them. So this role has permissions from DynamoDB. Here there's no use recorded. That's simple enough, we can take away DynamoDB. A little bit lower in this table, there's S3. And S3 was used 20 hours ago, and so that's not beyond our 90 days, and so we typically allow you to keep S3. It's simple and it's elegant. We don't need to have a 100-node Elasticsearch cluster. We don't need to have Hive or data scientists help us out with this. It's just provided by Amazon. Now, I think I got so excited when I, when I saw the Access Advisor came out that I kind of jumped the gun a little bit. And so at uh, Aardvark, we're hoping to have a temporary lifespan. It's a little bit of a hack. It uses PhantomJS to log into your console as if it's a browser, kind of like open up the inspector, run some JavaScript for all of your roles and users and groups and manage policies, and ask for the Access Advisor information and then save that to an RDS database. The end result is that you have a very simple REST interface to obtain Access Advisor information. You can query this REST interface to say, for a given role and a given account, tell me which services they're using in the last time they used it. You can also combine roles. And so if you have an application that's deployed to your test stack and your prod stack, you can say, give me the Access Advisor information for both of those roles, but combine them as a, third, a single entity. And if you want to make sure that your test stack always has similar permissions from your prod stack, that's probably a good idea. You can also go into an organization and across all of their accounts, combine all of their roles, all of their users, all of their groups, and that's a great way to see which technologies that company uses. There's at least 108 services in Amazon, and so if you're starting somewhere new, that could be really great. Since we've been at reInvent, we've talked to a couple people who have deployed Aardvark, and they're using it for other ways as well, to lock people out of accounts. So I had a meeting with the Access Advisor team at Amazon recently, and I asked them if there's anything that I could say to promote Access Advisor. I think it's such a wonderful data source. And all they said is, please ask people to use it. Take a look at it. If you're so small that you don't need to use our tools, at least log into the console, and you can look at it and do this manually. All right, here's Travis. Thanks, Patrick. All right, first up, 
let's clear the 800-pound gorilla in the room. The tool is called RepoKid, and I'm obviously showing you a picture of a goat. Why is that? Why is it not a kid? Well, when I started at Netflix, we had a tool called Repo Man that Patrick had developed. It was a big UI, and the deal was that a developer would go in and say, here's my application, which permissions can we take away from it? Which was very nice, but we wanted something a little bit more automatic. We want something where developers just have permissions automatically taken away without them having to worry about when they should do that and how they should do that. So that's how the idea for RepoKid was born. Repo man, but smaller, RepoKid. Now, if you know Netflix, and especially the Netflix security team, and maybe you've been by the booth, you'll see that we have a million stickers for our million logos for our very many projects. It is very, very, very important for us to get a good logo for each of our projects. In fact, so important that sometimes we come up with a logo and then we come up with the project, but that's a different story. So I knew that we were going to, as part of releasing this, come up with a really cool logo, so I gave it to the designer. No problem. A repo truck with a kid in it. And that's exactly what I got. And I showed it to the team, very excited. And that's when I got my first piece of feedback in Netflix. The logos should all be animals. Okay, fine. I want to keep my job. I'll get it redesigned. <clears throat> but I already called it Repo Kid. I don't want to go in and refactor my code, remove all the, uh, all the references to Repo Kid and put something else. What do I do? Well, luckily for me, there's a hack. A baby goat is also known as a kid. So there it is, the Repo Kid logo. This is why we have this and not a, an actual kid. So Patrick mentioned that we want to take away permissions that aren't used from our roles. He showed you the big bad hacker, which ended up being himself, but we have worse hackers, and they're trying to get into our stuff. And if they do that, they're going to be constrained by the permissions of the role that they get into. And so we want to take away as many of those permissions as we absolutely can. And in order to do that, that's why we have RepoKid, which is the tool that does it. Now, to understand how RepoKid works, it's important to understand something about Netflix and the way that we deploy things. We have immutable infrastructure. So think about the last Apache struts or you know, vulnerability of the, the week or whatever's going on in the news, and you're like, oh god, I have to patch this right now. So normally what you would do is you would figure out where you have that thing deployed, and then you would go and log into the box and patch it or whatever. We don't do any of that in Netflix. Rather than patch, what we're going to do is redeploy a completely new version that has the new version of that library baked into it. So we call, that, we call it baking an image with that in, and then we redeploy it. And we have tools that make that all really, really easy to do. Developer basically just pushes a button, and they get the new version of everything. So since we have immutable infrastructure, we also have a guideline, the quarterly deprecation cycle. And I say guideline because at Netflix, we really don't tell people you have to do something. That's against our culture. We'll never tell you you have to do something. What we'll say is that we've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and we think that it's a good idea if you redeploy your application at least once every quarter or 90 days. So because of that, we can assume that any permission that we haven't seen used in the last 90 days is fair game to be taken away. So we're going to make changes to the actual policy of the roles to remove the permissions that haven't been used. That's the whole point of RepoKit. To do that, it scans across all of our accounts and all of our roles and all of the policies attached to those roles and stores all of the information in a big table, a Dynamo table. 
By the way, sorry for the creepy goat eyes. I know that it's like a little disturbing. Um, hopefully no nightmares tonight, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we're scanning these roles, but we don't want to do it. We don't want to take away permissions necessarily across the board. Remember, I mentioned that we have a guideline to do a quarterly deprecation, not a requirement. And so for people that have said, yeah, I understand why we should do a quarterly deprecation, but they're not actually doing it that way, we want to be able to opt them out. And so for that, we have a filter, the blacklist filter, which does exactly what you think it would do based on the name. Here's this big list of names or ARNs or whatever. I don't want to touch those roles. Cool, no problem. What's another use for the blacklist filter? Think about your role for incident response. The last thing that we want to do is figure out that we broke incident response's role when they're in the middle of an incident. And you know, hopefully we're not having like fires and incidents every 90 days. So these are a clear-cut case where we have permissions that are intentionally not used every 90 days, and we do not want to break them. Now another commonly used filter is the age filter. We talked about the quarterly deprecation cycle, and that we can assume that an application will do everything that it needs to do as part of its normal business function, including redeploy once every 90 days. But what about the roles that are 15 days old? We don't know what they need yet. Maybe they haven't had a chance to redeploy. Maybe they haven't used their queue thing yet. So we don't want to take away any permissions from roles that are less than 90 days in our case. And so for that, we have an age filter, and that's configurable. Now, to understand how RepoKid works, Let's go back into the role lifecycle that Patrick mentioned a little bit earlier. And that starts for us with Spinnaker. Does any, all right, Patrick promised he wouldn't ask any more questions, but does anybody use Spinnaker? Couple? Okay. So Spinnaker is this really cool tool that makes it super easy for a developer to deploy an application. They can go in and click a button and say, I have a new application, my application. And then Spinnaker will set up everything that they need to use in AWS to make it so that their application is deployed with whatever parameters they want. Now, part of doing that is Spinnaker will create a role for their application to use. It would be called something like my application's role or something like that. And we're going to deploy that application role with a certain set of base permissions. But what are those base permissions? That's a balancing act. Let's say that we give too many permissions. We just like, you know, I don't know what it's going to need. We'll just, we'll just give a bunch, and then we'll take them away later. Well, for the 90 days that that role exists, it has too many permissions. And we know that Patrick and the other big bad hackers can take advantage of those permissions in our environment. So we don't want that. However, if we give too few, there are about 2,000 engineers at Netflix. And they're always deploying new applications and uh, therefore need new permissions. And there's six of us on the security team that give out those permissions. So if you do a little bit of basic uh, back of the envelope calculations, you'll see that that's a ton of meetings that we're going to be having with developers. It's a bad experience for them, because we don't want to stop developers from doing what they need to do for their job. We don't want to block them. We're not a blocking security team. We want to help them. So that's, that's out. We can't do that either. We can't just severely under-provision. So what we do is a compromise. We have a balance, and we will say, We'll give out these set of permissions that are basically benign, you know, the ability to create queues and stuff, and satisfy the use cases of 90% of our developers. And then for the other 10% of developers that need something that's maybe a little unusual or infrequently used, then we can have the one-off conversations with those teams. So with this balance, developers can do what they want to do. They're not being blocked in anything. 
And the security team doesn't have to spend all of its time giving out and having meetings with teams about why they want permissions. Okay, now we have what's considered a young rule. Spinnaker has created an application, created the corresponding rule with the balancing act of permissions, and now we're going to begin continuously monitoring the role to see what it actually uses. We're going to make suggestions to the policy using our data sources to remove unused permissions. I've said policy several times now. Let's see what that looks like. This is a very basic policy, probably the most basic policy you could have. Uh, uh, hopefully you've heard of it before, but in case you haven't, Amazon is well controlled with a service called Identity and Access Management. It is a very nice implementation of what is known as role-based access control in, in computers and security. In case you haven't heard role-based access control, it's a really simple concept. You know, I'm Travis, I own a car, I work at Netflix, right? Travis can enter Travis's car, Travis's wife can enter Travis's car, Travis and his coworkers can enter the building at Netflix. So the subject, and then what they can do, and maybe what resources that applies to. And that's exactly what we have here. The first part, the statement. Oop, that's a pointer. The first part is the effect, which is allow. So in this case, we know that everything else that comes in this policy is going to be allowed. And by the way, if it's not explicitly allowed in IAM and, and uh, policies, then it's gonna be denied. But it's nice to have an explicit allow here. Next up is the action. In this case, S3, or the Amazon Simple Storage, Simple Storage Service, list bucket. And finally, what resource that applies to. So the example bucket. So taken together, this policy allows the role that it's attached to to list the contents of the example bucket. And what we want to do, the name of the game here, is removing unused actions and unused resources in some cases. To do this, we're going to use data sources. The first data source you've already seen, Aardvark in Access Advisor. Now, Access Advisor is really powerful. It can tell you definitively when the last time every service that Amazon provides was used. So you might see that S3 was used today, and Compute was used a week ago, but queues are allowed by policy and have never been used. And that's exactly the kind of data that we want. Now, there is a drawback. Access Advisor can only tell you for the entire service level whether it's used or not. So maybe I can see that, that queues are used, but I don't know which queue actions have been used. So for that, we need another data source. Next data source is CloudTrail. CloudTrail can show us specific actions. So which queue, which queue operations are actually being called, for example. Now it's important to realize that in CloudTrail, not every action is tracked. So just because you haven't seen an action in CloudTrail doesn't mean that you can take it away. It may just be it's an, untra it's an untracked action. And the other important thing to know about CloudTrail is that sometimes the action, as it shows up in CloudTrail, may be named differently than it is in your policy. So it's, it's important to keep a mapping of those two things. That being said, it's a very powerful data source for us, and it can be used to further trim policies beyond what we would be able to take away 
with just Access Advisor. Our final data source is S3 Access Logs. For S3, this is a very powerful data source for us because not only can we see specific actions being called, but we can see which resources they're applied to. So maybe you're only doing S3 stuff on a bucket or two, and even which objects within those buckets. So for S3 access logs, we can scope down the resource policy, which is very nice. All right, let's see how all of these work together for another example policy. We have here another example policy, and sorry, I know it's a lot of text. I would prefer not to put this much text on the slide, but it will be worth it. <laughs> so we have a policy that allows some EC2, some S3, and some Q actions. And we're going to look through each of our three data sources and take things away. First up, Access Advisor says, you have Q stuff, you've never used it. Go ahead and get rid of it. Cool, that's easy. Our policy is already a third smaller. Next, we can say, we can query CloudTrail and see, oh, you're only using one of those compute actions that you have in policy. So we can scratch the other one out of there. And finally, we could look at S3 access logs and say, instead of a resource of star, we can apply this policy to just the bucket that you actually need. So using these three data sources, you can see you can chop down a policy pretty well. And, and combining the data sources is how we get to our least privileged model that we want. All right, so back to our role lifecycle. We're, we're using these data sources. We're making suggestions to policies. But we're not actually touching anything yet. Why not? Because it's less than 90 days old. We haven't seen what it needs to do yet. At some point, though, it becomes a mature role. It means it's 90 days old, no longer excluded by our age filter, and therefore, it's susceptible to continuous repoing. So we'll look at the role periodically, maybe once a month or something, query our data sources, see which permissions it has that maybe it doesn't need anymore, take them away. And then sometime later, maybe the developers will come up and say, oh, I need this new permission. Cool, no problem. Add it on. Then we take away unused permissions again. Add on permissions, take away permissions, add, take away. This is like continuous cycle while the role's being used. But then finally, we get to our final stage, the retired role. Now, retired roles will have been repoed down to zero. None of the permissions are used. It's stopped being deployed. It's not actively used for anything. And this is nice, because I know I have seen many applications that either I wrote or somebody else wrote and was really excited about the time and then just stopped being used. And it's just sitting there somewhere. It's not patched. It's not anything. So in our environment, those permissions get taken away, which I think is fairly powerful. And finally, we have this retired role with zero permissions, and we can periodically go through, see when it's not being attached to an application anymore, clean it out of the environment. So let's see how all of this works together. Repo, how RepoKit is actually going to do this for our four stages. An update, a schedule, a repo, and a rollback. First up, update. We do this every day, all of our accounts all of our roles in our accounts, all of our permissions. And we start off by querying IAM. What roles are you aware of? Maybe we see a new role that we didn't have yesterday. We're going to figure out what permissions it has, store it all on the table. Maybe 
we see new permissions for a role that we did know about. Those all go in the table too. And we're doing this continuously every day. And then we're going to query our data sources. CloudTrail, Access Advisor, S3 logs. We're going to use that to determine what the policies could look like for the role and store that in the table. So even though we're not doing anything right now, it's ready to go. We have all of this constantly updated in our table. And when we want to use it, we can. Second step, we actually want to do something. So we're going to schedule a repo. We want to let our developers know that we're doing this. We're going to pull all of the roles that are susceptible to repo from our table. So we have A, B, and C roles. B and C have unused permissions. We're going to let those developers know. Your application B has these permissions, Q. Hasn't been used in the last month. Now, developers might say, oh, no, 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 I need those permissions. I haven't used it, you're right, but I need those permissions for something I'm going to be doing. Or maybe they say, you know what, I, just, I really don't want you to touch the role, so we can exclude it. We can put it on the blacklist. But the vast majority of the time, developers say, you know what, cool. Like, take them away. I'm not using it. And that's good, because developers understand why we're doing this. And so we're helping developers to, yes, please take away my unused permissions. We want it to be something that's helping them. We don't want this to be that horrible thing that the security team does. We just wish they'd go away and stop doing it. If we have every developer asking us to, to blacklist their roles, we're doing something wrong. So most of the time, happy developers. So we've, we've scheduled their repo. We're taking away permissions in a week. These are the permissions. And we've notified the developers. Now to actually do something, we're going to repo. First up, of course, Query Dynamo. What roles do we have that we can actually take away permissions from? And then, for each role, we push new policies to IAM. So this is, remember, we saw the policy. We saw what we could chop out. That's exactly what we're doing here. We're going to push a new version of the policy in place over the existing policy for that role. And then, of course, anytime we do anything, back into Dynamo. This is important for the next step we'll see in a second. And finally, we let the developers know. We've taken away these permissions from your role. Again, cool, no problem. They know what they need to do if they, ha if they have any questions, if they wonder why it was taken away, if they have any problems. So everything's good. Now let's say everything's not good. Developer comes up and says, you broke my role. No problem. Query what we have in Dynamo, put it back in IAM, store in Dynamo that we did this, let the developer know it's fixed. This is really easy. We just push a button, it's done. So we can immediately put back anything that we broke, which is very important, because we don't want to be down for hours while we broke somebody's application. We want this to be something we can just flip the switch and it's back to where it was. So over time, in our account, this is a large account of ours. I've stripped off the numbers on the left-hand side, but what you're seeing is an 80% drop in permissions. So we, we, had, we had significantly over-provisioned permissions in this account. By design, these are benign permissions. We're not giving away dangerous stuff, but 80% of the things that we gave away aren't used. And so actually, this account was so big that we took away permissions over two days. And then, it's hard to see on this, at this scale, but growing up from that left-hand side, permissions actually go up a little bit. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. In some cases, we took away something developers needed back, so we did a rollback. In some cases, developers pushed a new application, 
and those applications need new permissions. And then from there, we, we did a repo again. But you'll notice something. We didn't take away 80%. We'd already taken away all of the over-provisioning to begin with. And so this repo was a small repo. This wasn't a big deal. And then permissions have been growing since then. This is going to be repoed again probably when I get back. So let's recap. What are the things that we should be thinking of if we're going to do this? The first is the developer communication. We want developers to understand why this is important and why this is something that helps them. This isn't something we're doing to break their applications or stop them from doing their jobs or get in their way or like this horrible like, you know, security thing. Like, no, this is something that we're doing because it makes sense for us. And of course, if you want to opt out, you can, but you shouldn't have to. It should just work. But we need developers to understand why it's important. And we also need them to understand what they should do if they have any problems. Come talk to us anytime. You also want to have provisions for what you're going to do with infrequently used roles, like incident response I talked about. You don't want to figure out that, oh, I should have left the incident response role alone you know, an hour into an incident. So like, think ahead of time. What are these roles that might be problematic? At Netflix, you know, we have the quarterly deprecation cycle. We don't have every developer using the quarterly deprecation cycle. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's a legacy application. So for these reasons, it's important to understand ahead of time what are the roles that we should leave alone. Now, for our data sources that we're using for this, they're big. Uh, I know that we spend multiple hundred thousand dollars a year just on Elasticsearch clusters for our CloudTrail cloud data for the security team. So it's, not, it's, a, it's a large amount of data, and to make it useful requires big clusters and a non-negligible amount of engineering time. We think it's worth it, but it's just something to be aware of. And yours would probably be cheaper than ours, honestly. <laughs> we have a lot of data. Now finally, what do you do when you have a developer that you broke? You want to be able to flip that switch and put their role back. You don't want to have them be not able to use their application for hours or days or anything awful like that. And even better than that, what if you're the one that notices that their role's broken because of a repo? We have the CloudTrail data. What if we see an access denied for a permission that, used to, that the role used to have and we just re recently repoed? We can just put it back ourselves. So these are the kind of things to think through. With that, that is the end of our talk. We do have a Gitter where we hang out and do repo kit and aardvark development. Patrick and I are both on Twitter. And the project links are below. Now, importantly, Will and Sean at the front have stickers for these projects. So yeah, please take advantage of the logos. And I, I will take any questions. Yes. Yeah, the question is, how do we actually take away permissions? Is, that, is it done by automation? Um, yes, it is. So in the case of Repo Man, we used to have a suggested policy, but then an engineer would have to go and apply it. But in the case of Repo Kid, we actually have IAM um, put, put, uh, put policy. Yeah, put policy, something like that. We have IAM put policy. So Repo Kid is able to actually make changes to the policy itself. Yes.
The question is, do we know when the uh, Access Advisor team will make data consumable by API? Uh, I do not. Yes? The question is, how much of the time is spent on this process? A lot of the time has been spent developing RepoKid. Um, so I was the first developer on the pro well, that's not true. Patrick started the project. I took it over shortly thereafter. I spend a large amount of my time developing RepoKid. We think that uh, given that most of the development is, is completed by now, that for teams uh, and organizations that want to adopt it, it should be significantly less time than I've spent. Any questions? All right, well, thanks everybody. Please get stickers.